This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the MathEd Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and with me today is Dr. Anderson Norton from Virginia Tech. He's an associate professor in the Department of Mathematics. Andy, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you. We're going to be talking about Andy's recent study published in the Journal of Mathematical Behavior, Volume 39, and that's entitled Students' Unit Coordination Activity, a Cross-Sectional Analysis, and he co-authored that with Stephen Boyce, Catherine Yulrich, and Nathan Phillips. Um, but Andy, if you've been listening to the podcast, which I know you have, I always like to start by getting a little background from my guests and kind of place their academic history on the map. So where was it that you did your grad school uh, studies and what was the topic of your dissertation? I was at the University of Georgia. My advisor was Les Steffi. And the topic was on fraction schemes and operations, but that was really more of the context for studying how students form mathematical conjectures. So uh, Steffi had formed pretty fine-grained models of the kind of mental actions that students perform to make sense of fractions, and I wanted to get to that level of depth and understanding where their conjectures come from. Mm-hmm. And the work of Steffi is still evident in this study uh, in JMB. So I was wondering if you could say more about how your own past work um, with the teaching experiments you've done and the work that you've done to understand students' thinking, how did that lead to this study in JMB? When I started my dissertation, I was focused on these schemes, but by the end of the teaching experiments that I'd done for that study, I realized the kinds of conjectures, the kinds of mathematical power that students had was more directly dependent on the kind of mental actions they had available or the mental operations they had available. Splitting was an important one, so I've written a lot about splitting, but Steffi and Amy Hackenberg, who's another one of his students, they had identified the central importance of units coordination across lots of different mathematical contexts. And so I got interested in, you know, what are the mental actions and operations? How are they coordinated and organized to support units coordination? Because it was so pervasive because those mental operations associated with units coordination seemed um, so powerful. I, I wanted to look into that as well. Mm-hmm. And how did you get this team together that worked on the JMB study? So Katie Ulrich is yet another one of Les Steffi's students. Okay. <laughs> she works here at Virginia Tech with me. And then Nathan and Steve um, are graduate students here at Virginia Tech who uh, were interested in that work. Oh, great. So um, what would you describe as the primary goal or goals of this uh, JMB study on units coordination activity? So units coordination has been described in terms of stages, these broad stages of development. And they're pretty intransigent. It's hard to move students from one stage to another um, through instructional activity. So I wanted to identify finer-grained sort of rankings of these units coordinations to understand what's the activity associated with these various stages of units coordination and, you know, how does that activity change as students seem to be moving from one stage to another. Mm-hmm. And could you just give us a quick rundown of those stages in case people aren't familiar with the past research? Yeah, it's, it's basically describing the numbers of levels of units that a student can simultaneously coordinate. So a student who's first learning to count is just going to have one level of units. Everything's going to be at the level of just 
one, two, three. It's just going to be a, a sequence of numbers, and even that takes a while before it's really a number sequence and not just a sort of um, recitation of number mm-hmm. words. But once they do that, they can start to engage in activity like counting by threes or fives or tens, but they're mm-hmm. still working within just one level of units. They're not mm-hmm. really thinking about five as five ones, and they're not thinking about six fives as 30 ones, you know, so they're not really abstracting another level of units. But students eventually do that, and then they can work with two levels of units at once, and those are stage two students, and then eventually students can coordinate three levels at once, and those are stage three students. And we don't usually talk about stages beyond three because there's sort of a recursion built in. When you get up to where you can coordinate three levels of units at once, you can sort of deal with any number of levels of units by, you know, recursively deal with, dealing with them three at a time. Mm-hmm. And you give an example in the paper of the stage three where it's kind of like you can think of seven fives, but then you can switch that around as five sevens, and then you can actually use that to build on the numbers, and that leads you to 35 as a number, and coordinating all three of those together, right? Yeah, so there's all kinds of creative mental activity you can engage in, all kinds of different mental gymnastics you can perform when you when you're at stage three and we're not talking about like memorizing multiplication facts we're talking about a real fluency and being able to like break that seven down into five plus two and then when you're dealing with six sevens you can think about six fives and six twos and you put those together to figure out what six times seven is so Mm -hmm. it's not just knowing that's 42 right and so in this study though you're building upon that to get more detail and end up with more kind of qualitative descriptors to get into more detail between those stages or moving among the stages yeah exactly Okay, great. So as you're trying to work toward that goal, who were the participants that you worked with, and then what were the tasks that you used to try to elicit the student thinking that you could then look at? We worked with students at a rural high-need school. We'd been working with students in that school for a long time. We purposely wanted to work with a high-need school to see what kind of impact we might have. Um, So this was part of a study in which we were looking at mathematical apps uh, on the iPad that might help students develop fractions knowledge. And, and some units coordination uh, ability as well. But there was an opportunity when we were working with those students to study just their units coordinating activity as it was. So we interviewed 40, well, we interviewed more than this, but um, the ones we were able to get pre and post interviews for three months apart were uh, 47 sixth grade students. And the tasks we used were derived from past teaching experiments a lot of them involved just like strips of paper or little uh, thin rectangular bars and you have a small bar and a medium bar and a long bar and you pretend the small bar fits into the medium bar three times and that the medium bar fits into the long bar four times. So the students know these two relationships and mm-hmm. from those they're supposed to be able to derive how many times the small bar should fit into the long bar. So that's a kind of units coordination. They have to Mm -hmm. think about the medium bar, each of the medium bars as being three small bars. So when they iterate that four times in the long bar, they're really iterating four threes. So there's Mm -hmm. a units coordination there. So we looked at those kinds of coordination students could do. And the reverse of those, like suppose you know that the medium bar fits in the long bar uh, four times and the small bar fits into the long bar 12 times, then you should be able to drive through a kind of reverse multiplicative reasoning the number of times that the small bar fits in the medium bar. We had other tasks as well, but most of them were around these embedded relationships between these uh, rectangular bars. Mm-hmm. 
And so with all this data, you did some qualitative analysis and then quantitative analysis to kind of check on um, the descriptors and stages and things that you came up with. And I would encourage the listeners to go to the article for the details on that, but can you give us just a quick overview of how you made sense of that data and came up with your findings? Yeah, so it started with uh, Steve Boyce and I. We went through the initial interviews with the 47 students, and we ranked them just based on definitions of the units coordination stages and our own knowledge of units coordination we independently ranked the students 1 to 47 in terms of their sophistication in units mm-hmm. coordinating activity. Uh, we did that independently and then we came up with a rank coefficient to see how well we agreed and we got a really strong agreement and mm-hmm. so then we decided um, to further validate and test the reliability of the construct and, and, and the kind of activity that we were identifying that we wanted to have a second pair of raters look at the second interviews. In the meantime, before we got the second pair of raters, and that, by the way, is Katie Ulrich and Nathan Phillips, we characterized each of the 47 students in our rankings. So we just ranked them, but then we tried to characterize, okay, what kind of units coordinating activity were they engaged in? And then we looked across the characterizations and actually came up with descriptors and what kinds of descriptors distinguish number 42 from number 43 in our ranking. Is there some something that we can identify that they're doing differently? Mm-hmm. And because we weren't always able to identify differences, there was some collapsing. So the right. 47 yeah. students were collapsed down to 36 um, hypothetical students, and then the descriptors were collapsed down to 16. So we had these characterizations for 36 students, but then we also had these 16 descriptors across the 36 um, students in the ranking and we gave that to the second pair of raters and they were to look at the videos of the you know the second videos so they're not just looking at the same data that we derived our descriptors and characterizations from and they were to rank the 47 students or place them on this 36 um, rank scale and then we did another rank coefficient to see how well the agreement was and it was almost as good as our the agreement between the first two raters. So uh, we felt that that validated the kinds of distinctions that we were making in these 36 ranks. Mm-hmm. My guest is Andy Norton from Virginia Tech, and we're talking about his study, uh, Students' Unit Coordination Activity Across Sectional Analysis, which is in the Journal of Mathematical Behavior. And I do want to say, as you point out in the paper, the 36 rank scale of the units coordinating activity, you know, this isn't meant to be the definitive construct for how this unit coordination happened. It was a way of you making sense of your data and a way to get insight into the student's thinking so you're not putting it forth as a definitive model, but it did seem to give you some insight. So I was wondering if you could talk more about what you saw in that student work and what you saw in terms of the descriptors of what was happening and how they were coordinating units. Yeah, that characterization is right. Um, We didn't get perfect reliability across the two um, rankings, the initial rankings and the second rankings. So we can't say that this is, you know, a fine 36 grain scale of units coordinating activity. But yeah, we did see some patterns. So one of them is as students begin attending to additional levels of units, you'll see them start to conflate units. They'll start to conflate different levels of units. So like, for example, one of the tasks we give has to do with the classroom. Um, where a teacher likes to have desks in rows of six and they have so many desks in the classroom already and they're going to add more desks to the classroom, how many total rows would they have? And a lot of times when students are beginning 
to attend to a second or third level of units, they'll conflate things like the seats with the rows. So uh, what we found was often those unit conflations were occurring during these um, regions where students seem to be developing from one stage to the next. So mm-hmm. students are engaging in new kinds of units coordinating activity as they attend additional levels of units, but as they are just first um, attending to those additional levels of units, they'll make these conflations. So when they do conflate units, it can actually be a sign of progress that the students are actually beginning to struggle with, you know, a kind of activity that is novel for them but can lead mm-hmm. to their development to the next stage. Mm-hmm. So it might be kind of a folly to try to get them perfectly to jump forward to the next stage. There might be this work and that has to messy work to go from one stage to the next. Yeah, something like what uh, Les Duffy calls um, necessary errors. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're necessary because the student's current stable ways of operating don't account for these additional levels of units, but mm-hmm. they're beginning to attend to them, and there's a kind of like very conscious, effortful activity that they're engaging in. It's a, it's a struggle, but it's a necessary struggle in order to reorganize their ways of thinking and, and reach that next stage. Mm-hmm. Other things that you saw in your data? So past studies by people like Steffi and Hackenberg, they had uh, identified the importance of building composite units, units that contain other units um, in multiplicative reasoning, or um, how students go from multiplicative reasoning to being able to reverse that reasoning. And what we found across these 36 ranks was it actually fit really well the descriptions that they had come up with for how students develop multiplicative reasoning and reversing that reasoning um, fit very well with the progression of activities that became available across these 36 ranks. So, you know, that was, that was nice to see. And it, so uh, a lot of what we found just affirmed how multiplicative reasoning might develop through building composite units, distributing composite units, and then being able to finally kind of reverse the relationships that they build between the various levels of units. Were there other connections that you saw um, from your findings that either affirmed or just gave you new insight into past research? The, the thing that I mentioned about units conflation, that had come up in work by Sophian in studying students' development of just even early counting, that students make similar kinds of conflations when they're first learning to count, and that it actually can be a sign of progress rather than something that you know you want to try to correct immediately. You want to let the students struggle with the, you know, struggle with that new activity, which might might include them conflating or confusing the units that they're working with. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking quite a bit about the research side of things and kind of these uh, you know, theoretical models for students thinking in this area. Um, if we go to the practical side, what implications do you see for teachers who are actually trying to teach students and guide them through these stages or guide them to advance in their thinking about units? Well, a lot of the activity that we identified in the 36 ranks isn't even available for students to engage in unless teachers provide students with uh, context, at least from the teacher's perspective, that involve multiple levels of units. So one of the things we suggested was that if teachers could, could find tasks where there were at least three and, and um, better yet four levels of embedded units, say you have a number of chips embedded in a certain number of cups and a number of cups embedded in a certain number of boxes and boxes within crates. So you've got these various levels of units 
and then you can ask questions about the relationships across those units. I mean, this is just a whole number context, but you can do this in fractions context as well and algebraic mm -hmm. context. But making sure that the problem situations include the opportunity to work across at least three or four levels of units because some of this activity, like distributing composite units or um, reversible, you know, reversing their multiplicative reasoning, they're not even possible if you're only working with two levels of units, if the problem situation only involves two levels of, of embedded units. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Andy Norton from Virginia Tech. And uh, Andy, thanks so much for speaking about your work. Now I want to turn the corner a little bit and talk a little bit about uh, not work. So if you weren't in math education as your career, what would you see yourself doing instead? So I graduated from actually Virginia Tech, where I am now, in 95. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I ended up, I decided that I wanted to go into this Masters of Fine Arts program at Hollins College and um, hmm. write poetry. Um, I wanted to be in their creative writing program. And wow. I decided if I got admitted, that's exactly what I was going to do. And they, uh, they rejected me, which I ended up um, working as an engineer for a couple years before I decided that's not what I wanted to do with my life. And, and then I left um, to go to grad school at the University of Georgia. So that's how I ended up in math ed. But, yeah, I guess... Um, if I weren't in math ed, I'd probably go back, maybe I'd be on a sailboat somewhere or something doing <laughs> odd jobs so that I could live out my life as a starving artist writing poems. That's uh, mm -hmm. about all I can imagine. But um, When you're doing academic writing, do you find a way to get a creative flair in there or a poetic flair? <laughs> yeah, it's really funny you ask that because I don't write poems much anymore, and I realized that even though it's technical writing, um, the work we do in math education is still very creative. I mean, you have to put theories together, you have to make sense of data, you have to tell a story that's compelling. And, mm -hmm. yeah, I found that a lot of my writing in math education, even though it's technical and it's, it's mostly empirically based, it sort of scratches that itch to create. Uh, I agree with you on that in terms of the writing uh, and the creative aspects of it. I have found, though, that some reviewers don't like my more poetic or when I try to make a little <laughs> bit more of a rhetorical flourish. Yeah. A lot of times I have it in my first draft or my second draft, but by the time it's published, they've beaten the creative flourishes out yeah. of the paper. <laughs> it just happened to me. Um, well, it didn't just happen to me. I, I breathed a sigh of relief that it didn't just happen. I, I had this really... I thought beautiful connection between uh, a, a, an artwork, um, it's um, the creation of Adam, and uh, something to do with neuroscience, and I sent it to um, a journal that publishes neuroscience, and they came back with um, a revise and resubmit, and there's a lot of work that I have to do on that, but I, I would breathe the sigh of relief because they didn't ask me to remove, you know, this <laughs> introduction that I returned to at the conclusion, you know, which is sort of like this... I used some poetic license there, and the reviewers, if they didn't appreciate it, then at least they didn't, you know, demand that I get rid of it. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I definitely feel the same way in some of in some of my work, and yeah, I, yeah. I hate when they try to beat that out of it. Well, yeah, hopefully, hopefully you can keep yours in. I uh, I have a paper that's accepted now in ZDM, and it's about attending to precision, and yeah. I st I started off the paper. Um, talking about precision in mathematics versus precision in poetry and how in poetry you will sometimes purposefully be ambiguous. You don't want it to be precise because you want to like have it instantaneously mean several different things. 
Right. And so I ha- I used Robert Frost's poem, and I talk about, you know, uh, he chose the one less traveled. And I'm like, right. that's actually an ambiguous phrase. Like, is the thing that made all the difference the, the path that he chose, or was it the fact that he made a choice and that people actually debate the meaning of this poem? And it's actually a sarcastic poem, but people think that it's actually about, you know, taking the less traveled path. So I, I point out how that was not a precise phrasing, but that's probably part of why this poem has such a life. And in mathematics, we don't want to have multiple interpretations. We want to say exactly what we mean. And uh, that only made it in the first draft. And by the second draft, it had already gotten removed. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I actually, I was just thinking about that poem, and I, I didn't realize that it was satirical. Yeah, he's actually making fun of his friend who is very indecisive. Yeah. And in the in that poem... At the earlier part of the poem, it actually says that the two paths are indistinguishable from each other. And what's actually important was that the person finally made a choice. It actually isn't really about being less traveled versus more traveled and stuff. So, but yeah, anyway, it's, it's, uh, this fun part of our work where we do have these creative aspects, but I'm always working on these rhetorical flourishes and I don't usually get to see them in print. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. So every once in a while you get away with. And sometimes it's just more playful. It's not even necessarily poetic. Like, um, I had a paper yeah. that came out in 2012, and it was a quantitative paper, which I feel like when you have quantitative data, like, you get a lot more leverage. But I wanted to have this piece at the end about Piaget's INRC group that didn't tie in quite as nicely, but it gave an explanation, like a theoretical explanation. It wasn't as empirically based, but it gave a theoretical explanation for some of the things that we found. And mm-hmm. I was so afraid they were going to cut that out, especially because the manuscript was running a little long. And, and you know, but those are the little pieces. You know, I'm glad the empirical study got published, but like that little piece is what I'm glad. You know, it got through. It, it was like a rider. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it's been great talking to you, Andy. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak about your work. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.